Chapter 9 The Life and Adventures of James P. Beckworth, Mountaineer, Scout, and Pioneer, and Chief of the Crow Nation of Indians. Written from his own dictation by T.D. Bonner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The peltry and other things not required in our expedition being all safely cached, our whole party, numbering 250, besides women and children, left Cache Valley for the country of the Blackfeet, expecting to make a profitable hunt. I had engaged to the fur company for the spring hunt for the sum of $500, with the privilege of taking for a servant the widow of one of the men who had been killed in the bank. She was of light complexion, smart, trim, and active, and never tired in her efforts to please me, she seeming to think that she belonged to me for the remainder of her life. I had never had a servant before, and I found her of great service to me in keeping my clothes in repair, making my bed, and taking care of my weapons. We kept on till we came to Sheephorn Mountain, but, finding it impassable for the snow, we changed our course and proceeded down the Port Neef until we arrived at its junction with the Snake River, one of the main branches of the Columbia. No trappers having preceded us on the Port Neef, we met with excellent success all the way to the junction, a course which occupied us three weeks. An advance party arriving at the junction before the main body came up, immediately upon landing discovered Indians coming down the Snake River. They were not perceived by the Indians, who were as yet at a considerable distance. Our whole force was soon prepared to meet them. Leaving 100 men in camp, the remaining 150 marched up the river, keeping in the timber, our policy being to retain our foes in the open prairie, while we kept the protection of the woods. At last they perceived us, but, seeing that we had the advantage of them, they made signs of great friendship. Not wishing to be the aggressors, we contented ourselves with observing the enemy and retired toward our camp without any hostile demonstration on either side. Seeing signal smokes arising on every side, we knew an attack on our little band was meditated by their thousands of mounted warriors. We therefore determined on a retreat as the safest course. There being many Indians about our camp, it required a strict watch to be maintained. Every man having his gun constantly in hand, and the priming well looked to. We were able to converse with them, as many of our men could speak their language. But they still pretended to entertain toward us feelings of the most distinguished consideration. We encamped that night, keeping a strong guard and saw all around us, as far as the eye could extend, numerous signal fires. At daylight, one of our men shouted, Stop the Indians! Stop the Indians! My rope is cut! On looking, we found that three of our best horses had been stolen, notwithstanding our unceasing vigilance. The cry then passed around, The ropes are cut! Shoot them down! Shoot them down! Rifles began to crack, and six of the Indians fell five of whom were instantly scalped, for the scalps are taken off with greater ease while the bodies are warm. And the remaining Indian, having crawled into the river after receiving his wound, 
his scalp was lost. One of their chiefs was among the slain. He was shot in our camp before he had time to make his retreat with the others, who all ran as soon as our camp was alarmed. Not a moment was then to be lost. We knew that their signal fires would cover the whole prairie with savages, for we were in the very heart of their country. Packing up, in a few minutes we were on the retreat, which we pressed all day. We encamped the same night, as the Indians did not see fit to follow us. Soon after this occurrence, a party of fur trappers, consisting of twelve men, under the charge of one Logan, left our company to try their fortune, but were never heard of afterward. Every exertion was subsequently made to obtain some clue to the cause of their disappearance, but nothing was ever learned of them. Beyond doubt, they fell victims to the treachery of the Blackfeet. Our party continued trapping up the Port Neef until we came to Sheep Mountain, which we passed without difficulty, the snow having by this time disappeared. We proceeded on to Bear River and continued trapping upon that stream and its tributaries until we reached Sage River, where, very unexpectedly, and to our utter surprise, we met two white men, Black Harris and my old friend, Porter Lees. This verification of the prediction of the old chief was, to say the least, a remarkable coincidence, and one not easily accounted for. Our two friends informed us that they were from St. Louis, and had left General Ashley and Sublet, but a short distance in the rear. We took up our traps and moved immediately to Weaver Lake, and formed a rendezvous to wait the arrival of the General and Sublet. While resting there, a party of sixteen flatheads came to our camp, and informed us that there were thirty white men with women and children encamped on a creek twelve or fifteen miles distant. They stated that the party had twenty-six guns, but that their ammunition was expended. Having some splendid horses, in the very best condition, I proposed to go and take them some ammunition, in the event of their having need for it on their way to our camp. Provo, Jarvie, and myself mounted three of our fleetest steeds and found the party in camp. As we had expected, we found they were Campbell's party, among whom were many of our personal friends. They had met with very good fortune in their crews and had lost none of their men. We encamped with them that night and escorted them to the rendezvous the next day. On our way to the rendezvous, we heard singing in our rear and, looking in the direction of the noise, we discovered a party of 500 mounted Indians coming directly toward us. Flatheads! Flatheads! was shouted. And, believing them to be such, I and my two friends wheeled to go and meet them. Approaching within a short distance, to our horror and surprise, we discovered they were Blackfeet, a tribe whose prize white scalps very highly. Wishing to take us all together, probably, they ordered us back an order we obeyed with alacrity, and we speedily gave the alarm, placing the women and children in advance and directing them to make all speed to a patch of willows six miles in front. And there, to secure themselves, we formed to hold the Indians in check. The women made good time, considering the jaded state of their animals, for they were all accustomed to horseback riding. 
By this time, the Indians had commenced charging upon us, not so furiously as was their wont, but they doubtless considered their prey sure and farther did not care to come into too close proximity to our rifles. Situated as we were, it was impossible for them to surround us, for we had a lake on one side and a mountain on the other. They knew, however, that we must emerge into the open country where their chance of attack would be improved. When they approached too near, we used our rifles, and always with effect. Our women, the meanwhile, urging on their animals with all the solicitude of mothers who knew that capture was certain death to their offspring. The firing continued between both parties during the whole time of our retreat to the Willows. In fact, it was a running fight through the whole six miles. On the way, we lost one man who was quite old. He might have saved himself by riding to the front, and I repeatedly urged him to do so, telling him that he could not assist us, but he refused even to spur on his horse when the Indians made their charges. I tarried with him, urging him on, until I found it would be certain death to delay longer. My horse had scarcely made three leaps in advance when I heard him cry, Oh God, I am wounded! Wheeling my horse, I called on my companions to save him. I returned to him and found an arrow trembling in his back. I jerked it out and gave his horse several blows to quicken his pace. But the poor old man reeled and fell from his steed, and the Indians were upon him in a moment to tear off his scalp. This delay nearly cost two more lives, for myself and Jarvie were surrounded with the Blackfeet, and their triumphant yells told us they felt certain of their prey. Our only chance of escape was to leap a slough fifteen feet from bank to bank, which we vaulted over at full speed. One Indian followed us, but he was shot in the back directly upon reaching the bank, and back he rolled into the ditch. We passed around the slough in order to join our companions, but in doing so were compelled to charge directly through a solid rank of Indians. We passed with the rapidity of pigeons, escaping without any damage to ourselves or horses, although a shower of arrows and bullets whistled all around us. As we progressed, their charges became more frequent and daring. Our ammunition now grew very short and we never used a charge without we were sure of its paying for itself. At length, we gained the willows. If our ammunition had been plenty, we would have fought them here as long as they might have wished. When all was gone, what were we to do with an enemy more than ten times our number, who never grants or receives quarter? Iroquois proposed one bold charge for the sake of the women and children. Let us put our trust in God, he exclaimed, and if we are to die, let us fall in protecting the defenseless. They will honor our memory for the bravery they witnessed. Sixteen of us accordingly mounted our horses, leaving the remainder to hold out to the last. Iroquois led the charge. In our fierce onset, we broke through two ranks of mounted Indians, killing and overturning everything in our way. Unfortunately, my beautiful horse was killed in his tracks, leaving me alone amid a throng of Indians. 
I was wounded with an arrow in the head, the scar of which, with many other wounds received since, I shall carry to my grave. My boy Baptiste, seeing my danger, called upon his comrades to assist him to save his brother. They charged a second time, and the Indians who surrounded me were driven back. At that moment, Baptiste rode up to me. I sprang on the saddle behind him and retreated in safety to the willows. The foe still pressed us sorely, but their shots produced little effect except to cut off the twigs of the bushes which formed our hiding place. As for charging in upon us, they showed some disinclination. To hold out much longer was impossible. Immediate assistance must be had, and it could come from no other place than our camp. To risk a message there seemed to subject the messenger to inevitable death. Yet the risk must be encountered by someone. Who'll go? Who'll go? was asked on all sides. I was wounded, but not severely, and at a time so pressing, I hardly knew that I was wounded at all. I said, Give me a swift horse, and I will try to force my way. Do not think I am anxious to leave you in your perilous position. You will run the greatest risk, said they. But if you go, take the best horse. Campbell then said that two had better go, for there might be a chance of one living to reach the camp. Calhoun volunteered to accompany me if he had his choice of horses, to which no one raised any objection. Disrobing ourselves, then, to the Indian costume and tying a handkerchief round our heads, we mounted horses as fleet as the wind and bade the little band adieu. God bless you, shouted the men. The women cried, The great spirit preserve you, my friends. Again we dashed through the ranks of the foe before they had time to comprehend our movement. The balls and arrows flew around us like hail, but we escaped uninjured. Some of the Indians darted in pursuit of us, but, seeing they could not overtake us, returned to their ranks. Our noble steeds seemed to fully understand the importance of the mission they were going on, when about five miles from the camp we saw a party of our men approaching us at a slow gallop. We halted instantly, and, taking our saddle blankets, signaled to them first for haste, and then that there was a fight. Perceiving this, one man wheeled and returned to the camp, while the others quickened their pace and were with us in a moment, although they were a mile distant when we made the signal. There were only sixteen, but on they rushed, eager for the fray, and still more eager to save our friends from a horrible massacre. They all turned out from the camp, and soon the road was lined with men, all hurrying along at the utmost speed of the animals they bestrode. My companion and I returned with the first party, and, breaking once more through the enemy's line, rode back into the willows, amid the cheers of our companions and the loud acclamations of the women and children, who now breathed more freely again. The Indians were surprised at seeing a reinforcement, and their astonishment was increased when they saw a whole line of men coming to our assistance. They instantly gave up the battle and commenced a retreat. We followed them about two miles until we came to the body of Bolaire, the old man that had been slain. We then returned, bringing his mangled remains with us.
On our side, we lost four men killed and seven wounded. Not a woman or child was injured. From the enemy, we took 17 scalps, most of them near the willows. Those that we killed on the road, we could not stop for. We were satisfied they had more than a hundred slain, but as they always carry off their dead, we could not ascertain the exact number. We also lost two packs of beavers, a few packs of meat, together with some valuable horses. After attending to our wounded, we all proceeded to camp, where the scalp dance was performed by all the half-breeds of women, many of the mountaineers taking part in the dance. The battle lasted five hours, and never in my whole life had I run such danger of losing my life and scalp. I now began to deem myself Indian-proof, and to think I never should be killed by them. The reader will wonder how a contest could last that length of time when there were but thirty to oppose five hundred men, and we not meet with the greater loss. It is accounted for by the Indian mode of warfare. The Indian is a poor marksman with a gun, more especially on horseback, and to kill with their arrows they must be near their mark. They often shoot their arrows when their horse is in full speed, and unless they are very near their object, they seldom take effect. When they hunt the buffalo, their horses are trained to keep by the side of their destined victim until the arrow is discharged. Then, springing directly away, he escapes the charge of the infuriated animal, which becomes dangerous as soon as wounded. Unlike the Indians, we seldom discharged our guns unless sure of our man, for we had no ammunition to waste. Our victory was considered, under the circumstances, a glorious one, and all who participated in the battle, our companions, lauded to the skies. The women, too, hailed us as the bravest of the brave, knowing that we had preserved them from a captivity to which death were preferable. Two days after the battle, we were again rejoined by our friends, the snakes, to the number of 4,000. They all took part in our scalp dance, and such a scene of rejoicing as we held has seldom been witnessed in the mountains. They deeply lamented that they had not come in season to take part in the battle so that not one of the Blackfeet could have escaped. Their wishes for battle, however, were soon after gratified. The absent parties began to arrive, one after the other, at the rendezvous. Shortly after, General Ashley and Mr. Sublet came in, accompanied with three hundred pack mules, well laden with goods and all things necessary for the mountaineers and the Indian trade. It may well be supposed that the arrival of such a vast amount of luxuries from the East did not pass off without a general celebration. Mirth, songs, dancing, shouting, trading, running, jumping, singing, racing, target shooting, yarns, frolic, with all sorts of extravagances that white men or Indians could invent, were freely indulged in. The unpacking of the medicine water contributed not a little to the heightening of our festivities. We had been informed by Harris, previous to the arrival of the general, that General Ashley had sold out his interest in the mountains to Mr. Sublet, embracing all his properties and possessions there. 
he now intended to return to St. Louis to enjoy the fortune he had amassed by so much toil and suffering, and in which he had so largely shared in person. End of chapter 9